I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The Pope and Young Club wants to welcome you as we rally together to ensure our bow hunting opportunities for today and tomorrow. You've come to the podcast that believes in preserving, protecting, and promoting the passion for bow hunting. Join us as we strive to be the voice of today's bow hunter. This is the Pope and Young Podcast. everybody welcome to the pope and young podcast i am joined as always by my co-host tim razuski and we've got a special guest uh somebody that i'm excited to talk with we've got mr cody robbins from live to hunt cody how are you man i'm awesome pal and i'm really excited to be on your podcast super pumped yeah man we um I don't remember, uh, at, at one point the conversation came up and, and somebody said, Hey, you need to have Cody and or Kelsey on. And, and so we reached out a long time ago and I just never got it, never got it nailed down until now. So I'm, I'm excited to have a conversation, excited to, to chat with you, man, for sure. We have a, actually, I saw in one of our original messages said, can you guys jump on a podcast? And I said to Kelsey last night, I said, you should be here because I think they would love to have you join us and the two of us hammer it out. She's like, Oh yeah, but they didn't say specifically they wanted me. So, <laughs> and she's not here, but she would, I'm sure she would love to talk to you guys one day w- with me or by herself or whichever. She's a, a passionate bow hunter. She loves the sport. Yeah, and absolutely. Man. Part of your show. I mean, um, it, I think you've <clears throat> always done a great job in your show and I followed you from the shocky era and when I, cause I didn't know the backstory. I didn't know your, your history until maybe you put it on the website or something, but um, I think it's every hunter's dream to meet someone in their life that they're, that's as passionate about hunting as you are, whether it's a best friend, a, a relative, or let alone a, a future spouse. And um, I think you guys work great together. And I think the show is probably a whole lot better as a team than, than individually. My, my opinion. So I am, I am super lucky that I found a girl that has the, that has the same passions that I do. And I get to share this journey with her because I'm honestly living my dream. It's, it's when I was a little kid, my dream was to have my own hunting TV show. And it was a far-fetched 
dream. It really was back when that dream was created. There was maybe six or eight hunting television shows that even existed. And it was on, it was a big deal to wait on for Saturday morning or Sunday evenings to watch the hunting blocks on TV. And you could watch, you know, um, Jackie Bushman, or you could watch real tree outdoors, or there was a few shows that you could watch. And that's all you got for the week for hunting. And so for me to have that dream and for it to work out the way it did, and also to meet a girl at the right time in my life that loved hunting that could join me on this journey is super cool stuff. And I'm grateful for it. So Tim kind of let us into it, but give us an introduction, not an introduction. Give us a backstory, man. Like how did all of this unfold back to the shocky days, back to, you know, how all of this kind of just happened. <clears throat> so I was 19 years old and this is when the dream I was hoping I was going to execute that dream to start a hunting TV show. And my very first step was my plan was to release a hunting video or DVD back in the day and advertise it in big hunting magazines buy a full page ad in Eastman's journal or big buck magazine up here in Canada, and then send them out from my house, just send out DVDs and just, I thought I could make a living doing that, or that was my goal. And I went out, I bought a professional camera. I worked two jobs for eight months, saved up a bunch of money. I bought a professional camera. I quit my jobs and I started filming to create this DVD or this whitetail and mule deer hunting video from Saskatchewan. And a month into filming that fall, I think it was 2001, Jim Shockey, who's also from Saskatchewan, Canada, was talking to another local fella and telling him that he was coming out to Saskatchewan to hunt whitetail deer for November. And when he was, he was asking the other local gentleman, he said, has anyone seen any big bucks hanging out this year? Any, you know, any little secrets or any, any little uh, tips that that guy could give him where he ha could have a starting point to hunt a big whitetail that fall. And this gentleman knew that there was a young kid that went and bought a professional video camera that had filmed a 190 class buck with a, a buck that was hanging out with him that had a big 12 inch drop time. And all the local people were talking about this footage that I captured of these two bucks. So the local guy told Jim all about these two deer and this kid and the dream this kid had. Jim corners me, which Jim was my hero. I had his three hunting adventures videos and I watched him on Realtree Outdoors on his home video segment. And he was, he was a rock star to me. Like Canadian people love hockey. He was my Wayne Gretzky. And he cornered me and actually invited me on a goose hunt with him and his son, Branlin. And I was just, just a young squeaker. And I went out hunting and I could not believe I was sitting out in the rain amongst all these decoys with Jim Shockey sitting right beside me shooting geese. I just couldn't even imagine that all of my dreams were coming true. At the end of that, he asked to watch the footage that I captured of this giant whitetail buck. So I went home and I put all of my footage on this VHS tape, but I didn't just put the footage of the 190 inch buck. I put the footage of every single deer that I had filmed that entire fall. And I put that giant buck at the very end of three hours of VHS tape. I gave him that tape and he had to fast forward through it to find the giant deer. But when he found the deer, he ended up offering me a job asking if I could be his cameraman for the fall, if I would quit my gig and he would pay me a hundred dollars a day and I could be his cameraman just for the fall. And from there, it just snowballed into a full-time job while we were sitting in a whitetail blind that fall. He told me that his dream or his focus or his goal was to start a hunting television show on outdoor channel in the next few years. And he wanted to start a show that was more over the shoulder, more of the hunter's point of view and just show real raw hunting footage. 
and try to capture those hunting moments in the way that the viewer felt like they were there with you. And we sat in that blind for a month. We got that 190 inch white tailed deer. We got him on November 30th. It was the last day of the season for Jim as a Canadian resident in Saskatchewan because he lives in British Columbia. And throughout that month, he just shared all of his visions with me. And when he went home, he called me in January, probably a month later, and he had cut me loose. You know, I was just there for a month to be his cameraman. And a month later, he calls me up and says, hey, I'm going to start that TV show I was telling you about. Do you want to be my full-time producer? You could be my editor if you're good with computers and you could be my cameraman in hunting season and we could travel the world and create this show. And that's when Jim Shockey's hunting adventures started in 2001. And I was his first cameraman editor. And it was just Jim and I actually for the first four years of his show. And it, it was crazy. The adventures that I got to go on with him, the experiences that I got, it was, I feel like I wish I would have been older when I got to go with him all over the world, because I feel like as a 19 year old, you don't appreciate the things that I got to absorb. Uh, I got the trips that I got to go on, you know, when you're on the Tibetan plateau and you get altitude sickness or no, I got altitude sickness in Tajikistan. I got food poisoning on the Tibetan plateau in China, hunting blue sheep. I got charged by elephants. I got charged by Cape Buffalo. I got charged by hippos. Just the things that I got to do with Jim and follow my hero in his footsteps. It was surreal. It, it was crazy. I, I was with them for seven years and in 2008, I still had that dream to start my own show and I started my own show and I branched out on my own. And, you know, I can't say for sure that there was definite hard feelings between Jim and I, maybe he was a scout, whatever he's gone. See you later. And he just stayed focused on his career. But Jim and I really didn't speak for about three years and I was doing my own show and I was only doing it in Canada. And the market is so much different in Canada. It's smaller. And, you know, to try and make a full-time living off a television show and your sponsors, it's incredibly hard. And the third year, it was 2010 or 2011, Jim calls me. And I got all nervous. Like I almost puked when I saw his name. I'm like, oh man, is he calling? Because he's mad at me. Is he calling? Why does he want to talk to me? I haven't talked to him in so long. And I answered the phone and he said, uh, code, I just sat and I watched two of your episodes on Canadian television. And he said, you belong in the States. You belong on Odor Channel. You're a great storyteller. I love what you're doing. Have you tried to get on the Odor Channel? And I shared with him all of my trials and tribulations trying to get on down in the States and just having no luck, not, not able to sign sponsors. Um, the, the petrifying reality of signing a contract with Odor Channel, you know, you have to buy your, your airtime, that your commercial wholesale space, you have to buy that and commit to that before you even know you're going to have people that sponsor your show. And the dollars down there were huge. It was petrifying to me. At the end of the conversation, Jim said, well, I think you belong in our industry down in the States. And if you'd let me be your marketing agent, I would be happy to bring you down to the States if you let me represent you. So I actually got on the outdoor channel in 2011 with our show and Jim and Greg Gutschow, that was his marketing manager. They were kind of our agents or they managed the Live to Hunt show for the first three years on Outdoor Channel. And then in 2014, Jim cut me loose. He told me, he just set me free and said, you know what? You can go out on your own now if that's what you want to do and do the show on your own. And from there on, I did my own marketing. And I've been on Outdoor Channel since 2011 with Jim, 2014 until now on our own. And I have a full-time cameraman and editor. And we just hunt full time. We do all the 
editing and film or editing and, and marketing in the wintertime and travel around to shows and do guest speaking and then get all geared up for hunting season again. And then we start it all again. So how is your relationship with Jim now? Like after all of that, do you guys still have a good relationship hunt together a lot? How does that relationship look? It's, it's, I think better than it's ever been. Uh, when I, when I was working for him, I feel like he was like an old school football coach or an old school hockey coach. Um, he was hard nosed. Nothing was ever good enough. And I'm not saying that in a bad way, but he pushed you to be the best that you could possibly be every single day. And the days where I thought I knocked it out of the park and I thought I deserved a take for what I had accomplished. He would make me feel like I still needed to do better. He wouldn't sit there and praise me say, Oh, you're the best. You're the greatest. Good for you. He'd say, Oh man, this, the framing on this shot could have been a little bit better or this could have been that. And I would, I would walk away from that thinking, what an asshole, man. Like what, why, why can't he, you know, throw me a bone here and there. But at the end of the day, looking back, he molded me into the person that I am. I never would have what I have today if I didn't have that tough love back when I worked for Jim, the opportunities that he gave me and how hard he pushed me. He got a hundred, he got 110% out of me every single day. And it, it just kind of threw me into a groove that set me up for success in my life and my career. And so while I worked for him, I saw him as a grumpy old school teacher. A lot of the times I would like grumble behind his back. I'm like, Oh, he's being so mean today or whatever. And then when that three years before I started working with him and his marketing manager, we didn't really speak that much. And then when we got on in the States and I started traveling with Jim and Eva started going to different shows together and doing the marketing and doing endorsement deals, it was awesome. And even once we decided to part ways, it was on really good terms. And Jim and I talk all the time. We're, we're good friends. We're always sharing deer, you know, what we're seeing in the deer woods, what the movement is like where I'm at, what the movement is like where he's at and also personal family stuff. He's a really good friend of mine now. And you ask about the hunting that kind of ticks me off. I, I see him as one of my all time greatest hunting partners I've ever had. And I would, I would love to hunt with him. And on social media, you always see people say, Hey, you and Jim should hunt together again sometime. And I always go on there when people say that, if I see it, I say, Hey, I want to, I'm just waiting for Jim. We just got to get it sorted out and we got to go. And Jim always laughs or something, but it never really happens. But I got to keep pushing him because I would, I would love to go and share hunting camp with him again. It would be fun. So was there ever that moment of like, was there ever that moment in your head of like, man, I shouldn't have met my hero. Like, cause I, I love this kid. I love this guy. And now I'm working for him and he's just a, he's a jerk. Like, was there ever that moment where you're like, God, he's not what I thought he was. For sure. And, and you know, um, before I started working for Jim, he was my hero while I was working for him. I got that mentality of where like, he's a jerk. And then as soon as I wasn't working for him again, and I was off on my own, there were so many lessons that I've learned, you know, as a boss or an entrepreneur and having employees, there's so many times I've laid in bed at night and thought to myself, Jim was right. Like all of the hard lessons he taught me or the, all the times that he was rough on me or disappointed in me. And I got mad at him for it. Or I held a grudge because he was disappointed in me. I was living it. And I realized that back in those days or back in that era, he was right. Every single time he was right. And every vision that he had, or every time he had reason to doubt decisions I made, he was right. And 
it, he went from being my hero to just being my boss that, you know, annoyed me at times to being my hero again. Once I was off on my own, Jim was my hero again. And it's crazy how much I admired his accomplishments and looked up to him again after I was back on my own and just kind of watching from afar, seeing where his show went and, and where his career went. And just, I was super proud to think that for seven years, I was his wingman. I was with him everywhere. We hunted in 15 different countries. The experiences that we had, you know, they're now that I'm 43 years old, I really appreciate those experiences and I, I value them. And back then, you know, I was just a kid that was homesick that wanted to get back after two months on the road. I wanted to get home and go play hockey with my friends or see my girlfriend. And now looking back, I wish I could almost redo those experiences and do, and try harder and be more focused and just absorb them for what they were and, and realize how lucky I was in those moments. I think you're really, so where did lucky you were, um, you know, sometimes when you're older and you have the same experience, um, you often don't come out the other end the same way. Um, you get a little more jaded in your life. You get a little more set in your ways. Um, I think probably at your age, despite maybe some frustration that you thought you were experiencing with his input and that you had the, the ability to later in life realize how valuable and accurate he was. Sometimes when you're older, you don't have that ability. You just go, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. And you go down your path and you never get to see um, the truth. You don't allow it in. Um, I, I don't think you should have changed it for the world. I know you're saying, man, I wish I could experience that a little bit later. Um, it, the timing may never have worked again. I, I, I think I went through the industry a little bit. I traveled to Africa. I filmed 72 hunts in Africa. I got back. I never got paid. I was mad. Um, I look back. I wish I would have done a lot of things different. It was right on the edge of syndication leaving and the home shows and sportsman channel starting. And I got so burnt out on filming and not getting paid, not getting appreciated that the mentor wasn't there. It wasn't a person that had knowledge and experience and good input. It was, I was being taken advantage of. And frankly, there's no way I was going to make a career of it that way. I was young enough that I could have, I believe, I could have absorbed and, and survived a, a tough love mentor like that. And I'm very envious that you got that. I think um, there is a perception out there about every character on television. And um, you're not the first person to say that Jim was is tough, but I think his character shows that. And it's, it's, uh, think it's actually very easy to appreciate um if you've been through any any tough times in your career sure jim jim reminds he reminded me of uh i'm a really good friend with a, a gentleman that's uh was a professional hockey coach he was a hockey coach for the toronto maple leafs um and he was old school hard-nosed and i I just feel like the things that he went through, he, he got fired from coaching the Maple Leafs because he was kind of using some old school mentality and stuff. And it just reminded me of, you know, maybe Jim was like that same version of a boss in hunting and it, in the moments it's not fun, but looking back, I'm just so grateful because it, those kind of people are, are winners. They're whatever they're doing, they're the best at it. And it's lucky that the people that are involved with them, they make sure they're the best also. And it, it was really lucky. It was, 
my life would be totally different right now. If I, if I didn't spend my first seven years in my twenties with Jim, I have no idea where I'd be right now, but I know I wouldn't be where I'm at for sure. And I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for that. So where did, where did Kelsey come into the picture? And what does she do when you say, Hey, will you marry me? By the way, your living is going to be filming a TV show. Like you, yeah, like how did that all work out, man? Where did she come in? Well, I was, I was actually filming for Jim. It was in uh, 2006 maybe. And, uh, Jim asked me to take Arlie Claypool hunting, which was Kelsey Claypool's dad. So he was a guide for Jim. He got drawn in Mulder country where I live in my, my home turf at home in Saskatchewan. And we have giant muley bucks. So I take this gentleman hunting and I know that he has like four of the prettiest daughters on the planet. So while I have him hunting, I'm asking him, I'm like, are any of your daughters available? <laughs> and he's, he's completely grossed out because he doesn't want me anywhere near his daughters. But he did point out that his youngest daughter was not married yet. And I begged him to get me a date with her. And he let me know for sure that there was no chance I would ever take his daughter on a date. And he thought that was disgusting. Six months later, <laughs> he asked me to take her hunting. He had a great time with me. I got a great, I got him a great big muley buck. He asked me if he could put her in the mule deer draw the next year and take her hunting. And that's exactly what I did. I took Kelsey hunting, fell madly in love with her. I had a huge crush on her. And of course she didn't give a hoot who I was. I took her hunting. We shot a giant buck. It's a really funny story. We're hunting with a muzzle loader and the buck was 150 yards away. He stands up out of his bed. We're laying on our stomachs on the top of a hill. So we'd be skylined if we got very, very high. And I'm filming right down the barrel of her gun and she shoots and the buck, the smoke clears and the buck's just looking around confused. She completely missed him. So I tell her I have to reload the gun, but I can't sit up on the hill to reload the gun. I got to stay flat. So I got my head down and I can't see what the buck is doing. And the entire time I'm reloading the gun, I'm asking her for a play-by-play. -play. I'm saying, what's he doing? What's he doing? And I'm like trying to pour the powder down the barrel laying flat. Then I'm trying to push the... What's that? <laughs> trying to pour it down the barrel sideways. <laughs> yeah, it was impossible. So I, I'm doing everything I can to get the gun reloaded without spooking the buck. And I can't look up at the buck. And I'm asking her and she keeps saying, he's just standing there. He's just standing there. He's just standing there. And he was 150 yards. And I knew if he walked any further away, he was out of range. So we like, we had no leeway there. I get the gun reloaded. I pass it back to her. She gets back on the backpack and I get the camera back. I hit record. I zoom up on the buck. I'm like, okay, do the exact same thing. Aim, hold in the exact same place. She shoots the smoke clears. There's legs in the air. She dropped him on the spot. We completely crushed the steer. We start walking over to this buck and we're walking and we're walking and we're walking. And I, I get looking and I re I'm looking back at the hill we're sitting on. And I'm thinking, how in the hell did she hit the steer? Like, th this is a bomb. And I get there. I'm like, are you sure he was standing the entire time I was reloading? She's like, oh, maybe he wasn't standing. Maybe he was walking, but he never ran. I get my rangefinder out and I range and he was over 200 yards from the hill that we were sitting on. And I'm thinking, how did she hit the steer? So I look at her and I say to her, where did you aim on the last shot? She's like, well, the first shot, she's like, the second shot, when I got him, I lined up on the backpack and I started to squeeze, but I got thinking about the first shot and how hard the gun kicked me and how the scope hit me in the forehead. She said, I didn't want that to happen again. So I started to squeeze. I turned my head away and I closed my eyes <laughs> and she pulled the trigger and she poleaxed him. So I don't know where the crossers were when she pulled the trigger, but she got him. <laughs> 
was my that was my very first hunt with Kelsey. So oh my she goes home. You're allowed I to get tell Arlie. this story? <laughs> I'm allowed to tell it. I've told it so many times that she's okay with it now. Oh but yeah, my she's not really impressed. So I, I corner Arlie after hunting season. I'm like, Arlie, you got to get me a date with this girl. Like, please, I have such a crush on her. I would treat her right. He's like, no, never bring it up again. I don't want to talk to you about going on a date with my daughter. So I drop it. Six months later, Arlie calls me and we don't talk. When it wasn't hunting season, we never talked. Arlie Claypool's name is on my phone. I answer it. And he says, he doesn't say hello. He goes, you're in. I'm like, I'm in. I said, Arlie, I have no idea what you're talking about. What's going on? I haven't heard from you in months. He goes, you're in. And I said, just Arlie, I swear to you, I don't know what you're talking about. And he says, oh, this is disgusting. I can't believe I'm going to say it. I just heard Kelsey telling her mom and her sisters that she thinks she has a crush on you and she really, really likes you. You better attack right now. And I, I did. He gave me the heads up and I attacked and I took her on a date. And then I bet you it wasn't uh, six or eight months later and we were engaged. And that was, that was the first year that I was actually starting Live to Hunt as well. So the first three years, it was Live to Hunt with Cody Robbins. And then as soon as we got married, then we turned it to Live to Hunt with Cody and Kelsey. That's awesome, man. That? How do you script that? That is, it's as if you designed a show around that script. I mean, that's, that's awesome. Super lucky. Really lucky. We uh, honestly say both of you have outkicked your coverage on your wives. So God bless you. <laughs> what about you? <laughs> yeah, I'm not very good at marriage. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so. Was she like all in for the idea of being on camera all the time, hunting for a living, trying to chase that? Or was it more of like, Hey, you know, I want to do this for a living, but we'll see how this goes. She, she loved hunting. She didn't enjoy the cameras as much. And one thing right out of the gate that really bothered her when social media was getting really big she loved hunting to go hunting with me and to, and she, she would go hunting all by herself. She loved it. She's, she's passionate about hunting, but she didn't enjoy when I was always trying to post her and stuff. And she saw other people, other ladies in the hunting space that she felt were in it for the wrong reasons that were in it to get likes. And, and she didn't want to be compared to that. It, it drove her crazy out of the gate. It was, she would, push away from that more than anything, but loved hunting crazy about hunting and, and loved the idea of having our show. Um, I remember one hunt that really stands out in my mind. I took her on a mountain goat hunt and she was a girly girl. She loved hunting. She was like, like it's purest form. She, she loved it for all the right reasons, but she was a girly girl. You know, she'd never, gone and slept in a tent on the side of a mountain. She had never hunted whitetails in minus 40, but she loved hunting, but she hadn't experienced the elements and how extreme it could be. I took her on a mountain goat hunt in August one time and it, it was absolutely crazy. We, we got lost one night in the middle of the night, actually the night that she shot her mountain goat. We had grizzly bears right before she shot her goat or she was trying to shoot her goat. We had a particular goat picked out and we were after him for two or three days. We snuck up on him. He was a hundred yards away and he was laying sleeping in a basin and she's laying on her stomach, leaning on a backpack, ready to shoot. And I'm sitting on her butt on top of her because we're on a, 
kind of a little cliff, like an outcropping on the on a really steep chunk of shale or a, a steep ridge. And the only place I could sit to get really steady with my camera, I was sitting over top of her on her butt and she's leaning on the backpack. And right when she's about to shoot the goat, the goat looks really worried and takes off running. And now he's running straight at us and we're all confused. We're wondering what scared this goat and why is he running straight in our direction? And then the guide yells, grizzly bears, grizzly bears. And two grizzly bears come running over the rise, over the top of this basin, just rushing this goat, chasing this goat and rushes them right, right past us. Now, while I'm filming this, I've been a cameraman for seven or eight years. These are the moments that I live for. These are the moments, you know, you you wait every two or three years to capture a moment like this, that the world is dying to see like a viral, crazy, exciting clip that you'll never forget. And while I'm trying to film these two grizzly bears rushing this mountain goat coming straight at us, I'm sitting on top of Kelsey and she's never seen a grizzly bear in her life. And while they're running at us, she's yelling, no, 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 because she's she's petrified of bears and the bears are running towards us. So she thinks the bears are charging us. So the whole time I'm trying to capture the greatest moment in my filming career, she's shaking and shaking the camera. And I still captured the moment, but it probably could have been a heck of a lot better. You'll see that shot on our intro montage of our live to hunt TV show. And there's only about two or three seconds that we can use because she was shaking so bad, but th- there were so many things in those first couple of years that just were just, she was not comfortable with, but it's crazy how much she grew and how much um, she fell into the groove and it just became a way of life for her over the last 15 years. But the first few years, there was a lot of things that she wasn't ready for. And she just rolled with the punches and it was, it's been a a really fun journey. That's awesome. I I actually remember some of that footage and I remember some of the other moments where um, she's gotten terribly excited and you see that adrenaline hit after a shot. And many of your, many of the guests on your show, I think you capture that extremely well. Um, Unless Dylan's got another question about Kelsey. I, I do want to go into a question about uh, the industry after a bit. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Tim. Well, um, one of the things that I've, I'm always interested in from those that are in the video sphere industry of hunting who have been, um, and especially those that are successful, the industry does attempt to um, acknowledge and award or recognize success in the industry um, by bringing folks together and recognizing exceptional pieces or episodes or or styles. Um, I haven't been in it in two decades. I want to know, is the industry doing anything, talking about or addressing um, the bad, some of the stuff that that's out there that is, that is just poor, um, not just, not just quality of, of video and audio, but you know, that desire to, to get the likes, like you said, to get the exposure out there so much that they jeopardize maybe their, their ethics, the purpose of video, the fair chase around hunting, just all that. There's a, there's a lot of stuff out there because we have so many mediums that, that I feel is just 
I'm not the guy that says, oh, the anti-hunters are watching all our videos and they're going to they're gonna hang us with our own rope. I don't think that many of them are watching. But I don't want to watch some of this stuff. What What is the industry, in your perspective, doing, if anything, to to talk about it? I I know as a, as a TV show host, the pressure to produce, to consistently stay strong and produce and, and stay at the top of your game. You're being compared nonstop on social media every single day. People are comparing your likes, you know, the interaction you're getting. They're comparing how many views you get on YouTube. And, you know, every once in a while you see certain people or individuals succumb to pressure they make choices that that aren't the best and they they pay the price for it we've seen people in our industry come and go because of doing things that were you know bad judgment um i I don't know where to go beyond that I, i know that um there is just that constant pressure in the industry you there's so many people producing great film and great footage and great stories nowadays. And it's, it's easy to become a a hunting producer. Now, you know, you don't have to have a half hour time slot on outdoor channel. You can have, you can just start your own YouTube channel. You can just share Instagram reels. There's so many ways that you can be an influence influencer in the hunting space that it's the competition is huge now. And I, um, I, I am proud to be in the space I'm in because I think it, it is, it has stayed classy. If somebody decides to make a bad decision, it seems like they're out, they're voted off the Island. And I, you know, and in some cases, maybe somebody makes a bad decision, but maybe it's not that bad of a decision. And there's, you know, some, you, you can turn the other way and those people can continue on, which is, which is cool. The, the thing is, if you're going to hunt 24 seven, your entire life, you know, at some point there's going to be somebody calling you out on something, or, you know, maybe you get an infraction from a, a game warden or something. And it's not that you're a bad person, you know, some decisions, you're obviously a bad person. You make bad decisions, but you know, there's going to be little things where people talk and things get blown out of proportion. I've seen that before where, you know, people get shunned and maybe the world doesn't know the whole story. Um, and I think it's good to, for people to stay in their own lane, I guess. And just, you know, give the people the respect that if there is something negative going on, let, let the legal system sort it out or whatever. And one thing, not just in hunting space, but in, but in any walk of life, it, it just, it's crazy. The trolls that come out on social media, you know, everyone's just doing their thing. And I'm the kind of guy that if, if I'm scrolling through on social media and I see something I don't agree with, I, I scroll to something else that entertains me and that just brings keep, me joy. Just stuff. keep scrolling. Yeah. I, I, I find something that I enjoy that makes me feel positive. It's crazy how many people stop on the things that they don't appreciate and they take a whole bunch of time to let you know how they don't appreciate it. And it's, uh, I know on my pages, it's what well, it happens to everybody. You're, you're, you can't please everybody. If you, if you throw a post out there, you're going to have, you can have a post with 3000 likes and you're going to have 75 comments. Not all of those comments are going to be the same. Some people are going to love what you posted or what you accomplished. And there's going to be other people on there that feel the exact opposite. They think you're a horrible person for a decision you made. And I, it just blows my mind. The people that have the time or want to waste their life focusing on tearing someone else down or, 
or focusing and dwelling on negative and throwing negative out there in the, in the world. It's a bummer. And I, um, I, I guess you're never going to get rid of it. It's just part of the way it is, but, uh, yeah, it, you're never going to get rid of the haters. Um, I think that's just, uh, I think the haters, well, I know they've been there all their lives. They've just never have the, had the chi and free and instant medium to voice their opinion back in the day. It was a letter to the editor, um, or whatnot, but you know, I won't, I'm, I'm curious if, Anybody in the industry that has any sort of, in a way, control, like whether it's sports, it's outdoor, root television, whoever it is, pursuit. Um, are we still just taking anybody that can buy their 13 quarters and no matter whether they've got 13 pieces on the floor to, to produce <clears throat> or not? Or are they to the point now that we have so many people that want this time slot, this availability that that they're kind of going through and, and proofing and and evaluating the stuff that's coming out. Obviously out on YouTube or mediums like that, you're not going to control that. But what does control that is someone like myself that goes, okay, I watched two episodes, not really keen on it. I don't need to tell them I'm not keen on it. I just unsubscribe or or I don't subscribe. And um a product like yourself that you put out um and you had such a, a influential mentor, um Sure, you're going to get negativity, but there's probably got to be a lot of positive. What What are the backbones of what you put out? Um, obviously, everybody wants an animal on the ground. Everybody wants a little bit of humor, a little bit of great, great video capture. But what else do you use in your business video aspect um, when you're building a show? What's some cornerstones or some key components or or rules? Well, um, for the start of your question with, can anyone just go out and buy that time slot? You know, like, can, can a rich kid go out and buy a half hour time slot on TV and have a show of, even if he doesn't belong, can he still get that space? And I, I think 10, 10 years ago, that was the trend. Um, hunting television was completely flooded. It was going crazy. Um, and it felt like not everybody belonged. It felt like, if, if there was someone who had a whole bunch of money and a whole bunch of people backing them, even if they didn't have the right content, they could have a show and they could be your peers. And I feel like right now it's like, it's going the other way where it's slowly going back to where the strongest survive. I feel like the industry has kind of pulled the reins back a bit and some shows have gone away, but a lot of those shows also maybe have left the television space, but they've gone to a social media space or they're, they're focused on YouTube. So maybe they haven't gone away, but they're, they're focusing more on digital, but, um, and then to get to what I think really works, um, in the entertainment world, I think every time I build a TV show, it has to have a certain element. It has to have number one, you have to tell a story that that's what I believe in. I, I don't believe in just going and sitting in a tree stand and whacking and stacking deer. I, I think that's a thing of the past. If you want to stand out nowadays, you, you have to tell a story and there has to be elements. There has to be, it has to be a giant animal. And I, I'm not, I'm not saying that it has to be a giant animal. There's, you can go on a great hunt and size doesn't matter. They're, the most important thing in hunting these days to me 
is the people that you share those experiences with the, the guys that are going to be sitting beside you when you're 85 years old on your deathbed. <laughs> you're not going to be sitting spooning your giant elk that you shot with your bow. You're going to be sitting with the guy that you shared that moment with, hopefully. Right. I think the most important thing that we can take from hunting is the camaraderie and the friendships and the bonds that we've created. But when producing television or hunting television or good hunting entertainment, I think it needs to have one of certain elements. And one of those elements is a giant animal. People love seeing a giant world-class animal that is kind of like would be their dream hunt or, or a dream animal to them. Another thing is family. It's, you know, if you, if you take your child hunting or you take your grandpa hunting or your someone, someone in your family, it's crazy how you connect with certain people on certain levels. You know, they're like, Oh man, he's going hunting with his grandpa. I hunted with my grandpa for the last time last year before he passed away. He's lucky to be there with his grandpa. Right. Um, so you have giant animals, you have family. I, I love taking kids hunting. And I've noticed that sometimes when I'm flipping through the channels or I stop on a hunting show and I see kids hunting, it's maybe not as a, I'm not saying not attractive, but you're not as drawn in. Maybe if it's a child that you don't know, um, I've noticed with my own kids, when I, when I post my kids on my social media, they don't get, if I, Oh, I'm so proud of my little girl. She won her soccer game. Well, a lot of people on my page want to see big bucks. They want to see giant sheds. They, you know, they're not going to be as proud as your child as you are, but still another one of those elements is your family or taking kids hunting, giving them experiences. I think take the TV or hunting or entertainment aside as hunters. I think it's, it's up to us to take youngsters out and give them the opportunity to fall in love with hunting. You know, it, there's a chance 20 years down the road that hopefully this doesn't happen. Hunting doesn't exist. If, if it doesn't stay popular and we, we don't keep introducing people to our sport and giving them that opportunity, we're in big trouble. And I know for myself, my parents didn't hunt. If it was up to my parents to take me hunting, it never would have, it wouldn't have happened. I, I fell in love with hunting because I knew other people that hunted. And when I was 14 years old, this is a whole nother story that I wanted to share with you guys. But when I was 14 years old, I wanted to be a bow hunter. I had a bow and arrow. I sat at home. I shot that bow and arrow every day. And I dreamt of the chance that I could sit in a hunting blind and have a deer walk by me and get a shot with my bow. I just couldn't imagine how amazing life would be if I got that chance. And my grandmother, she lived with me. She was my guardian each fall because my parents had a business in another province. And I wanted to go to school with my friends that I had grown up with through elementary school. My grandmother was 75 years old. She had permed hair. She had really pretty blouses. She was like a lady. She had never been, never had anyone in any one of her families that hunted. She didn't know hunting. She wasn't familiar with hunting. She knew that I wanted to go hunting. I explained to her, she said, she called me ducks. She said, ducks, how come you don't go and try bow hunting? And I said, because you need a guardian to legally go bow hunting in Saskatchewan. You need a guardian. If you're under 18 years old or 18 years of age, you need someone that's over 18 to accompany you. So she said one day, she goes, you know what? Let's go bow hunting. And th this is a lady that belongs in, you know, in downtown Denver. She, she doesn't belong out in the twigs. And I gave her a camouflage jacket and we went and sat in a blind. I shot my very first deer with a bow and arrow with her sitting beside me. And 
if it wasn't for her kindness and selflessness, she didn't, she didn't enjoy hunting. It wasn't her thing. She probably didn't want to see a deer get killed. If it wasn't for her selflessness taking me, I wouldn't have fallen in love with the sport. And look, look where hunting has taken me. And I learned from that how important it is. It doesn't have to be your child to take hunting. It can be the neighbor's kid. It can be the neighbor's kid's friend. You don't even need to know the little guy or little girl. If there's someone that wants to go hunting and you're a grown man and you have a pickup truck and you have hunting blinds and stealth cams and tree stands and you're out there and you have the opportunity sitting there, make it happen for someone. Give them that chance to fall in love with the sport. I think it's incredibly huge. And on my show, on the elements that it takes to make good entertainment, that's one thing that I love doing, introducing kids to the sport and sharing those adventures. It's, it's, it, it's great for them, but it's amazing for the person doing it. It's crazy. You, I take a kid hunting. If I went and sat in that same stand of my own stand, the deer that would be walking by, I sat there and passed up a couple bucks that I would have seen on my own that I wouldn't have shot. That I don't, not that I don't appreciate them, but I've shot so many awesome animals with my bow or my gun. It's just not exciting anymore. I enjoy it, but it's not, it doesn't give me a rush. You take a little kid and you sit there and you hear them start breathing hard. You hear them swallow. You hear them lose control. And all of a sudden you're a blithering mess. You're with them. It, it makes everything better for you as well. And I feel like a lot of people, a lot of big macho hunters that are secretive and do everything on their own. They don't, they don't get what they're missing out on the chance to introduce youngsters to the sport of hunting. And that's, that's one of my elements in the entertainment idea that I love having on my show. If I can take a kid, that's a really good story. Um, probably the most successful stories or what live to hunt is known for is deep, long, hard hunts for great big old bucks, deer that slip through the cracks year after year and get bigger and bigger. And those stories, it's just, you know, everybody kind of dreams of those opportunities to hunt a big giant deer and let them get big and old and, and shoot them and be in the record books, be in Pope and young. They, that's just something that's I think in, in most of us, some people are just meat hunters and that's awesome. But there's a lot of us that we love antlers. We love sticker points. We love drop times. And if you can document a story hunting an animal for multiple years, that's cool stuff. It motivates people. It drives them to get out there and keep trying. If they've had a deer that they've missed with their bow and arrow or they found sheds off of them, but they've never seen them in person, it keeps driving them and motivating them to get back out there and put more time in their stand. And maybe their chance will come at that deer and they can live out their dream. So it, I think when you're creating entertainment in hunting, a lot of it is motivating people. Um, or connecting with them, whether it's family, big deer, humor, humor is huge. If, if you guys watch our show, there's lots of times I act like an idiot and I'm not, I'm not trying to, I don't think I am a, an idiot or a, a dummy, but I, I honestly, I'm just out there to have fun. I, I love big deer. I love people. My favorite thing in the world is people, but I love being out there and making people laugh and people making me laugh. And to me, I've learned over the last 25 years or 20, however many years I've been doing this, that right back to people, that's, that's the greatest thing in hunting is the people that you share it with and having a good fun time. I couldn't. So more. I I've couldn't got a, more. I've got a hard question for you now. 
Because you have mentioned that people love big animals. And you have mentioned that yourself. I mean, we get fired up about antlers. We love, which of course, that's what Pope and Young is about, big animals. So why don't you choose to enter your animals into Pope and Young? <laughs> okay, uh, let's let's have the Pope and Young talk. I, I uh, Let me interject Pope really and- quick, really quick. We will probably get to the 211, the 2011 buck. And I do know there was an attempt. I do know there was an attempt. There was. There was. Yep. So, so Pope and Young, Pope and Young is huge to me. When I was a kid, when I was 12 years old, my best friend, Shane Hunter and I, we would sit and we would shoot a round bale. We would shoot hundreds of old Eastern arrows into that bale. And we would sit and talk about, well, what's, What's the limit for a typical whitetail buck in the Pope and Young record book? Oh, it's 125 inches or 100. And it has to be 126 inches. Like, oh, could you imagine walking up to a buck that was a Pope and Young? Like, could you imagine? Or going bear hunting in the spring? Oh, I wonder if our dads would take us bear hunting. Could you imagine if we shot an 18-inch bear and we got our name in the Pope and Young record book? It, it's been a part of my entire journey. It's, it's. Uh, I don't have, I don't think I have one animal in your, I don't have one animal. I think in any record book, I, I don't, but, it, it, but it doesn't mean you have one in Henry Kelsey. So Henry Kelsey is the Saskatchewan record book. And I have a neighbor, Bentley Coben, just an amazing human. Now this gentleman, he is so proud of the, the big deer that he gets to score that he enters my bucks. So when I go to his house and say, can you score my buck? Can you, he's an official measure. He'll measure my buck. And he enters it for me because he wants to tell people that he entered a new record, like he, a new record deer that year or the biggest deer in Saskatchewan. So he has entered some of my deer in the Henry Kelsey book. Now let's go to 2011. I hope young has been a part of a part of my life. I I'm referencing Pope and young measurements. That's a Pope and young deer. That's not a Pope and young deer. I, I want to try and get a Pope. And young. I've been a, an outfitter, a guide, Pope and Young comes up. It's a daily thing. It's a daily name. It's in 2011, I was watching a buck that I thought would score 260 inches. Gross on typical. He's, he's actually, he's in the corner. He's not, you can't really see him, but he's right over my shoulder. So more like he's 288 to me. He's a net 288. So, so I watched this buck all summer and he, I watched him I don't know, 47 days. And I saw him 41 of 47 days. I, I stayed with that deer every morning, every night, the rest of my life was put on hold because I, I was so afraid of another hunter seeing him and getting possessive that I thought, well, if if he was right on a main road, I was watching from a main road with my spotting scope. And I thought if another hunter comes along and sees him and sees me with my spotting scope, they're less obligated to get possessive and be like, "Uh Oh, somebody's already watching him. And they might keep going. I lived with that deer. I never left that deer the entire summer. Day three of archery season, I shoot him. We walk up to this buck. Just, we were in awe. Bentley Coben, the gentleman that enters my animals in the Henry Kelsey record book. He shows up on the scene within 20 minutes. He knows it's a special deer. Him and his son, his son Blake says, what is the Pope and Young world record non-typical mule deer? And we laughed because we thought, why would they bring up like what the world record is? Like we, we just shot a great buck, but that it's not a world record. And somebody says, I think it was the Kenneth Plank buck 
shot in 1983-1987. Says it's been a long time record, and it scored 273 inches. And we all laughed. We're like, "Well, yeah, 273 inch." We're looking at this deer, and he is like mind blowing big. But when someone says a net 273 inch mule deer, you don't think you're looking at one that could beat it. So Bentley, who's an official measurer, he says, I think we need to measure this deer because I think there's a chance this might break the world record. And we, we all laughed again. We were all having a beer. We were like celebrating. So he said, I have my measuring tape. I have all my gear. Let's measure him. So he gets his measuring tape and he goes and he's working on it. So now I've referenced my best friend, Shane Hunter. This guy is my ride or die. He has been my wingman since we were four years old. We learned to hunt together. We've done everything together. And he, I hope that he'll be my very best friend until the day I die. In school, he's dyslexic. <laughs> he went to what we call dummy math and we teased him for it. Okay. So when we had algebra class or whatever, Shane had to leave the room and go get the teacher's aid to help him with his simple math. Like, great dude. It doesn't, doesn't change a person, but that was one thing that I like to tease him about that. He took dummy math. Well, we add up all the numbers and Shane says, I'll go add them up. I'll go in the truck and shut the door. So it's quiet and I'll add it up. So we stay and we're all having a beer, enjoying the moment and admiring this beautiful buck. Shane comes back 20 minutes later with a stunned look on his face. And he looks at all of us and he says, uh, I got gross 294 and we we all crack up laughing and he goes and i got and i got net 288 and 18 well we're we're howling and i say somebody go take the pen and paper from the dyslexic kid and go add up the proper numbers so bentley he takes it from him and shane's like i'm not wrong i, I it took me 20 minutes because i was like being so careful i'm not wrong Bentley takes it. Now we all say, and we're still admiring the buck. Bentley goes to the truck, shuts the door. It's quiet. He comes back and he says, net 288 and one eighth. And we all just went quiet. We realized this could be the new Pope and young world record. Like would have meant the some things out there for Dylan. Dylan's not an official measure. Um, so I, I do this, you know, it's to help him out, get perspective. Um, when that happened in Henry Kelsey, they do not require a 60 day drying period. And they were referring to, um, at the time we were not recognizing velvet world records. We were accepting velvet entries, but we were not ranking them. Um, we were listing them at the bottom of our hard horn category. And so they were comparing against a hard horn world record at the time, non-typical meal deer. And this buck was in velvet. So I kind of want to set the stage for Dylan here to understand that um, we've got 288 score. It's not a 60-day dry, and the buck's in velvet, and we're comparing it to a hard horn category. Wait, so even though it was in velvet, I thought all along that velvet could be the new world record. There was just no separate category for velvet. No. So a velvet antler couldn't even be recognized as a new world record at the time? Not until four and a half years ago. Five and a half years. Yeah. Well, I remember when it changed. I just thought all we along. Accepting entries. We were putting them. We even created two velvet books, but we weren't officially recognized as, as world records. Now we could spend a whole podcast on how that evolved. But imagine at the time, I've got this 288. It's a velvet deer against a hard horn, as 
Cody probably knew it's a hard horn entry. And knowing that Boone Crockett does not accept Velvet, he's probably now faced, I'm going to guess with, wait 60 days and you're going to have to strip the Velvet. Yeah. And he's like, heck no. <laughs> well, so so I was on the fence. I th- This part of me, um, w- well, we planned the 60-day drying period. So I shot the deer on September 3rd, November 3rd. I didn't know what to do. I was totally confused, but everyone said you should find out if it would be the world record. You you should get it panel scored. So I reached out to Pope and Young. I'm not sure who I talked to, but they said you need to have it. If it's going to be a world record, it needs to be panel scored by three um, Pope and Young measures. So we lined up three Pope and Young measures. We set up for November 3rd and they come and they told me before the like our, I made a party out of it. So I invited like 60 people, appetizers. It was like a big fun night. And the the measurers, they called me a week before and they said, we advise you not to make it a social event because we've seen so many people get disappointed and the party is, it's like a downer. It's, it's ruined because it doesn't break the record. And you said 95% of the time, that's how it goes. Like not very often. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I said, I'm not, I'm not worried. I'm not, I don't, I want it to be a fun event. I don't, if it's not bigger than the Kenneth Plank buck, it, that's okay too. It's okay. And they're like, okay, we're just giving you fair warning. They get there and they get looking at the deer and they're like, whoa, they measure it. They come out and they said, they gave, they came up with the, after 60 days that it was net 288 and grossed 292 and something. So then they take me aside and they say, here's the deal with Pope and Young. If you want to make it the official world record, you got to strip the velvet. So then I said to them, this is just us in a room quietly, no cameras. I said, what's the stripping the velvet going to do? What's the, how is the measurements going to change? And they said, it's going to be bigger. They said, the velvet is very dry. It's like dried right out. If you strip the velvet, he said, they said, there's places on the buck. I could actually show you guys. There's places on the buck where there's velvet webbing, like, like between a duck's feet. So you can wiggle the velvet. And they said, he said, in the rules, we have to measure to the edge of antler material. And they said, you strip this velvet, he's going to gain five inches. That's what they said. And they said, he's not going to lose barely anything on the circumferences because the velvet's so dry. That's what they said. So they said, but he said, there's no doubt in our minds. It's going to crush the plank buck. It's, it's going to be, it could net over 290 with that webbing that they're not giving it credit for. And I, I just decided, I'm like, you know what? I, I don't want to strip my buck. Like I, I didn't want to change him from what he was. And it, it, it was very sad for me because I, I wanted the, I wanted my buck to get the recognition he deserved. I wanted the world to see him. I wanted, not that I wanted the world record status. I wanted the buck just to be admired and and appreciated for what he was. He has 31 inch beams. He had like a 226 inch typical frame. Like we're talking this deer to hold him in your hands. You just laugh. It's just like, you just gasp. You can't even absorb it. Like it, pictures do nothing for him. He's so incredible. And I, at the end of the day, I decided 
I just didn't want to strip as velvet. And I, I have that three man panel scoring official form. It's all filled out. They filled out all of the stuff. Like each one of them had to fill out a little piece and sign it. I have all that stuff and I still have it in a yellow envelope in a folder in my filing cabinet. I still have it. I never sent it away and it's still sitting here. So now let me give Dylan some more perspective. Go ahead, Dylan. Well, my question was going to be now that we accept velvet entries, why don't you enter it and be the new, have the new velvet world record? We there's, did there's been a bigger bucket. Velvet entries. Yeah. They, they always accepted them. Yeah. We just didn't rank them Dylan. So I, you, you, the puzzle look on in the back of your mind right now is, well, why would we accept it if we're not going to rank it? We didn't have separate world record categories for velvet and we could go down the roads of what some of those theories and reasonings were. There is the world out there that believes if you take a, hundred inch sick of black tail deer in velvet strip the velvet he's going to be 98 so velvet um, inflates the score and then there's non-typical deer and i could tell you some other stories about non-typical mule deer like his that there's the potential that when you take the velvet off what you think you're losing in circumferences you often gain in tine length because of our rule on webbing material we have to treat it as hard horn Often, burr points that don't qualify when in velvet will qualify hardhorn because that velvet's now removed and they meet that one inch longer than width requirement. We had four bucks at panel 2023 in Reno, three mule deer, one whitetail. At the end of panel, even with a little more drying time, our panel teams found points that qualified that the original OM didn't identify or they didn't qualify at the time, four bucks, their score slightly went up. We have a buck that we know is a number two velvet animal, sick of deer, <laughs> sick of blacktail that was stripped and then measured for Boone and Crockett because Boone and Crockett doesn't take velvet and its score went up. Not a lot, but it went up. So there is a misconception that velvet will always be larger. There's a misconception of how you measure velvet. And now, as of, I believe it was 2018, somewhere in there, when we decided that we're going to, at Hope and Young, we're going to rank velvet animals for world records, there are many animals that were never sent to us. Many animals in the hardhorn category that were killed in velvet and stripped so they could get a ranking and be submitted to Boone and Crockett that if, if we would have, back in the day, taken velvet and ranked them, there would probably be a lot more of our top 50 mule deer, typical mule deer, that would be in the velvet category, frankly, as well as some moose and caribou that have that were stripped over time. Now, what I would love to research and understand, our process today would be on a potential world record that I, as the records director, would assemble a, a special panel. I've got a few to do right now. And we would come up to... Cody's house, and this this may have been what happened, and a panel team measures it. The hunter can't be there. We do the math. We get a hold of the chairman, and we find out if there's any uh, differences between um, an originally entered um, entry form. So first, it's got to get entered. I've got to accept it. And if it is a potential world record, we'll special panel it. If it's top five all time, it will then have to come to our panel in a two, within that two-year period, which would be 
2025 in Arizona coming up. Where Cody's sitting right now is he has a panel form after a drying period that was probably, I assume, was um, um, established and, uh, and accepted and approved by possibly Eli or Ed at the time, who were the record chairman or director, and possibly Heisey. I, I, this is 211, so it might have been back in, in Glenn Heisey's time here. If Cody were to submit that now, it would come in. If every if all the paperwork and everything was great, it would be number two. And then he would be required from Canada, and like every other trophy out there for Pope and Young, would be required to come to panel where we would verify. Now, verify does not mean that we're going to come up with a new score. We're not trying to change the score. We are verifying that the original measurements done by the original OM, or in this case, a panel, were accurately um, determined. We know shrinkage will have taken place since 2011, no doubt. Um, but we account for that. Um, this was a unique time and situation for you. I'm sorry that if the organization, and I'm not, I don't know that it did, sort of made it not feel as wonderful as it must have felt, but we have avenues for those bucks now. And um, like the 259 buck, your, your number nine, it would be number nine hardhorned, I believe, in Pope and Young. Um, some people, and you mentioned this, and I was thrilled to hear this, that we refer to the measuring system. And I've said this a few times on, on our podcast, and I'll do it quicker. We have influencers and professionals out there referring to the Boone and Crockett measuring system that Pope and Young has permission to use, as does Henry Kelsey and so many other great books. Um, and then they, on the flip side, they'll say, well, records and score doesn't matter to me. It's not the end all. It does, it, it's not the definition of the hunt or you or the, or the animal, but it's a way to recognize even further the hunt and the animal and let that live amongst its peers forever. Yep. So little brief there to, to Dylan and yourself where we're at. Um, I was always curious as to what had happened. Um, I've read the articles out there about how some measures came, and I just never knew. I think it was timing, where it was at in time. Yeah. And in, so in 2018 or 2019, I just before things changed for Velvet with Pope and Young, a gentleman called me. I think he's a gentleman... Maybe I don't remember for sure. I'm just trying to, this is what I remember. I think he was lobbying with Pope to Pope and young to get a change because he killed a big typical buck. And he said, Cody, you have a huge voice. You have a deer that's like deserves the recognition. Help me get this changed. Help me discuss this with Pope and young and help me get this out on platforms to try and get some people behind it. And I was just, you know, with the, with the platform that I have and the followers that I have, I was worried if I started squeaking about people trying to get recognition for the size of a buck I killed, I was worried that, well, it would look bad for Pope and young for a guy with a big influence or a guy that has a big platform, maybe trying to benefit from it, trying to get Pope and young to change their ways. I thought, well, that's just going to make me look bad. And I, I didn't help that gentleman. I, I visited with him on the phone a whole bunch. I think if I heard his name, I would remember, but, uh, 
He's like, come on, you, you need to help. Could be. Yeah. And he had just killed, I think, a, would have been the new world record typical. And six months later, the 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 rule changed for, for Pope and Young. I remember. And I, I thought, oh, man, good for that guy. He was passionate about it. He wanted it to get changed and wanted his deer to be recognized. And I thought that was exciting for everyone, all, all bow hunters. That's really cool stuff. And I, I, not, I have nothing against anybody. I, I love the deer that I shot. I decided not to strip his velvet. I still have, I still have that paperwork and that, um, and I still have my 200 and my net 259. I still have his official measurements. I have everything. And I honestly had intentions to take it and send it to you guys. And I just, I never have. And I, I would love to enter my box. I think it would be you super cool. Be. You must be related to Dylan. Dylan has great intentions to always send me things that never does. <laughs> so that's actually what I was going to ask you, Cody. Sorry, Dylan. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to, I was going to veer off topic. Yeah. I'll work with you on the side, Cody, and, and we'll go down that path and I'll just give you options of, of what we can do. Um, I will sure. say for the, for the people that are listening and to, for Dylan and, and anyone else that was curious, we do have um, some great bucks that have been accepted and recognized in our top five that probably weren't going to be recognized or or submitted um, before we had the, the velvet ranking rule. And I'm glad that those have come in. Um, one, as we all know about the, the Gordon non-typical buck that is just enormous 326 that we recognized uh, three three years ago now. Yes. Buck is just sick. Um, yeah. The plank buck was, was there for quite a while out of Colorado. And, um, then there's, uh, in the, in the, I think it's the typical category in velvet. We've got, um, you know, Bodie's buck that in Utah, 2023 and at convention, um, that 2012 typical buck, um, was verified. I was there. I was part of that. And it's incredible 218 buck. Um, we've had many bucks that um, because of our requirement, and I'll just put this out there, they're going to see this, they're going to hear this, and they're going to hear it one final time. When an animal makes the top five all time, um, we are not casting doubt, but the validity and the integrity of our book and our data is, is paramount to my job. And if it's top five all time in North America, mule deer or whatever it has to come to panel and to understand we've got videos out there about what panel is it has to be verified it's not verifying the exact score it's verifying that it was measured correctly and there are challenges for some of those people out there who killed animals years and years ago are the addresses we have for them the contact information we have for them is probably bad and we can't find some of them those animals after two invites to panel have been dropped from the records. I want them in the records. I don't want to drop animals, but every animal that's ever been top five has met this requirement. If it's still in our book mm -hmm. and there are animals out there that are far, far away from our conventions and the ability and the effort to get them to us is great. We know that. However, every other animal has had to do this. I encourage anyone that does have one of those older animals that that has received a rejection letter from us only because of time, not because of the animal or measuring or disqualification on fair chase. It's because of our requirements. 
this ruling to recognize world records in velvet many years after we were accepting velvet has put us in a in a spot where it's hard to get those older trophies to us for verification we are aware of that um, right but to you i encourage you after this let's let's stay in contact and i will help you and give you options for those two or any other other deer um Boone Crockett is hosting an official measures workshop in Manitoba and then in Saskatchewan this summer. I'll be up there and we will be training 20 to 30 new measures that are probably, most of them are probably Henry Kelsey measures only and they want to become Boone Crockett Pope Young measures. Um, this will just get more official measures uh, in those great huge provinces that uh, we would, would love to find. I, there's got to be a lot more giant animals out there that getting a measure and and working that out is just a lot of work especially if there's a lot of travel and, and distance so just to know to anyone in canada we're getting some more measures coming out soon and that book we work with um several people that are part of the henry kelsey program and they are wonderful to work with they are some of our our good friends and great great measures so I'm excited, Dylan, out of all this to hear that Cody not only has belief, and you said something that was so powerful earlier about promoting bow hunting to the youth. Not only do we have a youth program at Pope and Young, but one of our three pillars, protect, preserve, and promote bow hunting. That's our mission. Um, knowing that you're out there doing that as a bow hunter, as someone that believes in um promoting bow hunting we're excited to hear that obviously the dream for me is we get this buck officially recognized it comes to panel you come to convention and people see that here is a a person in the industry that believes in the record book process and system um if that happens that'll be great not only for for pope and young but uh for those that show up to to meet people that believe in the in the system and believe in Pope and Young. So I'll get off my soapbox. Um, we got probably plenty of other things to talk about and we're probably running out of time. I apologize, Dylan. No, Jim, that's I, actually, you, you, you hit my question. You hit my question on, on the head. I, I was going to ask it. It's one of my biggest pet peeves. When you talk to somebody who doesn't like Pope and Young. They don't support Pope and Young. They don't believe in what we do. And you're like, well, why not? And they're like, well, dude, in 2011, I shot a buck that would have been the new world record, but it had velvet. So screw me, I guess. And I'm like, well, I mean, that's what you're mad about. Like, and so I was encouraged by the fact that you said, Hey, I understand why this is, uh, understand why that had to happen. I'm not upset by it. Um, cause so many people just find something and it's just like you talked about, you know, going back to the social media comments, it's just like that, where you scroll past something and you see something that makes you mad and you just stick on it. And so many dudes, it's because their grandpa shot a buck that was a uh, eighth inch too short and we didn't budge. And I'm like, what? That's what, that's why you don't like Pope and young. Or they shot a bison on an Indian tribal land and we don't accept it. And you know, it's it's like, well, rules are rules, bud. Like you're mad because we stand for ethics. Like you're mad because we're we're not bending the rules for you, even though we say we are a company that uh, an organization that promotes ethics. You want us to bend the rules. 
And so I, I admire that you said that, man. I admire that. Yeah, it's kind of a sucky situation. Like new world record doesn't get accepted. Most people have the right to be pissed, but you say that and then you're like, but you know, that's, that's how it goes. And I'm not upset about it. I'm not frustrated about it. I mean, you should definitely still enter it and be the number two. That'd be dope. But you know, I think, uh, that's just what so many guys just get so mad about one little thing. And then they ride off Pope and young forever. And, and so I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad that's not the case. I'm glad that's not the case with you for sure. Not at all. I, I, I admire Pope and young Pope and young gives bow hunters hope and goals. I, I think it's huge. It's Pope and young has been a part of part of my bow hunting career. It gives me a goal. Every time I go out there, I, you know, when I was a kid, I was, I was so motivated to try and get whatever species I was hunting. I was dying to try and get one that would meet the minimum Pope and young requirements. I, I love that. And I does that for every youngster that goes out there, does that for every grown man out there. And I had nothing against Pope and young for their rules at the time. I understood them. I get it. I know that velvet can change the measurement of antlers, whether it goes up or it goes down. So then it's not accurate and it's, it's hard to really compare it to a deer that's already hard horn. And I just loved the way my buck looked in velvet. And I didn't want to change how he was when I saw him standing in front of me that day. So there was no hard feelings at all. It just was what it was. Yeah. You're producing your show and you're hunting and you've had this, this career that you've established and it's going to go on. I don't think as I hunt through the woods here and there around the different states that I sit there and walk and think fair chase, fair chase. But I think it's just something that's in me, that's in every one of us. We we learn about it. We read about it. We evaluate ourselves. A lot of it's even our own ethics. How important <clears throat> is, is fair chase to you? That sounds like if you said it's not important that you don't hunt fair chase, but when you are filming shows and putting content out in front of people, let alone planning your hunt, getting uh, your itineraries together, how important is it that people know or people believe or people see Fair Chase in your show? I, Fair Chase means the world to me and what I do. And it it's a huge pet peeve of mine when my peers, they'll post uh, a 250-inch whitetail buck with bleach white horns with velvet, dried velvet hanging off of the antlers, and they'll brag about, go to our YouTube channel and watch this fair chase hunt for this buck, and you know it's a high-fence buck. And it, mm -hmm. it, it's a huge pet peeve of mine. I, I'm not, I, I'm not, I have nothing, I've got to be careful what I say. I'm not... No, you don't. I don't, I don't love hunting. Say it. <laughs> I don't love hunting to kill animals. I love hunting. I love the challenge that comes with hunting. And that's probably why I love bow hunting so much because it's the most challenging thing that you'll do as a hunter. And I, you know, if you're going to go and hunt an animal in a pen or you're going to break rules to get them, I, and I'll, I got to say one more, I got to say before I go forward, I have nothing against high fence hunting whatsoever. I think if that, if someone has no problem with it and they enjoy it, that's awesome. If someone loves hunting with a shotgun, that's awesome. As long as you're not breaking rules, that's great. But for me, my thing is fair chase. I, I don't want to do something 
that gives me an edge that's against the rules. And I, I love the challenge or the challenges that come with hunting more than anything. That's what I love. It's, it's not the killing an animal and the blood. It's the being out there, the fresh air, my favorite hunts that I've ever captured on film or ever experienced are the ones that took years, the ones that pushed me to my limits, the ones that nearly killed me emotionally. Those are the ones that mean the most to me. And those are as fair chases they get the ones that grind you into the ground. And I, I admire the people that stick to the rules and challenge themselves in that way. And the people that are honest about using the term fair chase and using it the right way. It's important to me. You know, fair chase, um, it has created laws. It has created rules that are governing bodies or wildlife management or law enforcement have used um, ideas and concepts from Boone and Crockett, Pope and Young and themselves that, that sounds like these are rules of fair chase. These are laws of fair chase, but fair chase is also ethics. And it's also, guidelines and and ideas about um not having an unfair advantage um if you look at a lot of the state bow hunting regulations what defines a bow and arrow a broadhead when they were first establishing bow seasons they went to pope and young and said we need some help with this maybe they didn't say it verbally but they looked for it and and got that information and some states and and provinces have (coughs) have their own stuff one thing that's Legal in, in, say, Wyoming is not legal in Oregon. One thing that's legal in in maybe Alaska is not legal in in Florida. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a fair chase thing. And it doesn't mean that if you if you if you practice that in one state where it's and it's but it's not legal in this state and you don't practice, you're staying within the rules and the laws. There are things that are out there that are legal to do that from the record book perspective are not acceptable for entry into the books due to a a guideline, a fair chase guideline. It doesn't mean that you've broken the law. And more often than not, if something gets rejected by me due to a guideline or a position that Pope and Young has, it's usually with the hunter that this is their first animal that they ever took that even came close to qualifying at the minimum score. And they just had never looked that guideline or that rule up. It was never a, a seldom, if ever, a law-breaking thing. It's merely a set of ethics that we have established about unfair advantage and and fair chase. And so, people can get hung up on um, law versus regulation or rule or ethics. And I I I want to believe that so many hunters out there have an internal ethic that is all based around what we see as fair chase. And there will be times when you will disagree with it um, and think this is okay. Um, everybody has to fill out a fair chase applica- uh, affidavit or an entry affidavit to the clubs. That's when you find out, did I, was, was this taken in a way that was unfair that I wasn't even aware of? I don't like those moments. I don't like rejecting entries for that. Right. But 90% of the time, I, and it's honest, it's my, probably more. They're like, I didn't know. Thank you for telling me. And they are motivated. They're still motivated to go out there and have goals of taking another big animal. Um, just because people have goals of taking 
trophy or minimum entry quality animals, you are doing good um, management of wildlife. You're letting younger bucks pass. You're being selective. You're not trophy hunting. You're being selective. You're choosing an animal that meets your requirements. And um, Lord knows how many clients or guests or family members you've taken hunting where they could have shot a forage horn that you'd shoot in Oregon any day. (laughs) (laughs) But where you're at, you're like, we don't need to do that. I don't want to do that. And you're going to experience so much more about hunting by letting it walk. And um, that isn't a rule. That isn't a guideline. That's not even fair chase. That's a person's ethics. And I think ethics are heavily ingrained in fair chase. Absolutely. I, you hear all the time, um, there's like a division or separation once in a while in comments or in beliefs on um, meat hunting versus trophy hunting. And I, you know, I'll post a picture of a buck, a big buck that I'm really proud of. And I'll, I'll make in my comment or in, in my speech, I'll say something about this is a Pope and young deer or a Boone and Crockett deer or a, a deer over 200 inches. Like I'll, I'll, I'll put some kind of mark there, a benchmark. And there'll be people that say, oh, trophy hunters disgust me. Or, you know what, that's you're hunting for the wrong reasons. What people don't realize, just because you're trophy hunting doesn't mean you're not a meat hunter. All you're doing is making it tougher on yourself. You're you're meat hunting just like a meat hunter, but you're drawing the hunt out. You're enjoying the fresh air. You're enjoying nature. You're creating excuses to be out there longer. That's how I see it. I I I enjoy eating the meat from a buck that I get just as much as the guy that goes out there and shoots the first deer that he sees. I, I, I love eating deer. I love coming home. I love preparing it. I love caring for it perfectly and properly. And I, I appreciate it that much more when I hunt for seven weeks to get that animal. And it, it it just drives me crazy when you hear those comments where people dig you because you're a trophy hunter. It's like all you're there for is that set of antlers. And it's not, you're, you're there for all the best reasons you could be there for. You're just, you're adding one more goal to your hunt. And I, I wish people would understand that. Well, and it's not only that, and uh, we might get off on a long tangent. I think that's okay. It's been good conversation. Not only that, but people don't understand. Well, I mean, if I shoot a big buck, then he's probably going to be an older age class deer. So better for conservation in the long run. So I'm doing more for the herd by shooting this six and a half, seven and a half year old buck that's past its prime, past its breeding prime, rather than you shooting the two and a half year old buck that is in its prime of breeding. So who's wrong here? Like, is it wrong for me to want to shoot a, a, a mature deer that has reached its full potential or is it wrong for you to shoot the first thing you see you see whether it benefits or hurts the herd no matter what you got a chance at a deer you're going to shoot at it and you know hey i'm in the middle of the boat like i don't shoot the first thing i see but come december if i haven't shot anything yet heaven forbid anything that walks out's getting shot like that's where i'm at um but there have been times where you know you have that conversation and it's well, shame on you for being a a trophy hunter. Well, you know, to an extent I'm, 
I, I'm really trying to help the herd here because, you know, I passed a 140 that was only two and a half years old, but he's in his breeding prime. And I might shoot a 120 that's seven and a half years old because of how old and mature he is. You know, and so I'm I'm helping the herd by passing the 142 and a half to shoot the one the the 120, you know, seven and a half. Whereas if you shoot the first thing you see, you know, it might be a year and a half old, you know, 110 inch deer. The herd needs that deer. You know what I mean? And so it's just those types of conversations that a you you need to you need to have, but you also need to be um gentle when having them. You know, we don't want to just come out and say, we don't want to just come out and say, well, we're right, you're wrong. We need to be informed when we're having those conversations, but we also need to be gentle when we're having those conversations and not just screw you, my way is right, whether you like it or not, you know? For sure. And I think the at the end of the day, the most important thing in our hunting community we need to quit throwing stones at everyone. Everyone needs to unite. It's so important right now. Our, our sport over the next 20 years, we could be in a very fragile state and we need to support one another. If, if I want to go out and hunt a, an eight year old buck and that's my thing and that's what drives me. And I have goals to get a deer in the record book. And it's important to me as long as I'm following the rules and not breaking any laws and I'm doing things the right way, then other hunters should completely support me. And the same for someone who chooses to go out and shoot the first deer he sees, whether it's a doe, a two-year-old buck, if he wants to go meat hunting and he has a tag in his pocket, when we see him, we should go help him load it. We should high five him. We should walk out into the field and help him pick it up into his truck. So he doesn't hurt his back and support him and congratulate him. And I think as hunters, we need to be happy for each other. We need to be a team. We need to be one giant team that stands together. And I think that's going to take what we love and our passion so much farther down the road for, for our kids and their kids. And we Absolutely. need to eliminate all, all of the negative. It's got to go away. There's, it's disappointing. Absolutely. No, you're well absolutely said. right. Well said. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. We need to have Cody on a few more times. I've got two more topics, Dylan. I'll keep them short. What else do you got? I just got to ask my question. I always ask, man. Okay. Well, first, why? What is about Saskatchewan? What is it? Where, that <laughs> you sound like such a jerk right now. Why do you live in Canada, bro? Why Canada? What is it about non-typical mule deer? What? It just seems so dominant. Okay, that got better. You got better with your question there. <laughs> I like to have a little suspense. At first, it's like, what's the deal with Canada, bro? Why would you choose Canada? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I so through my experiences hunting, when I started working for Jim, um, the very first 200-inch non-typical mule deer buck that I ever saw scored 217 and we were filming for Jim. I think it was in 2003 and it was the first one I ever seen. And when we killed that deer, it, it was a big deal. There was people coming from all over that guy. His name was Dougie Kilo. That guy was like a provincial hero. He, everyone was like, he was social media. Wasn't huge yet. And I worked for Jim Shockey. So it was a more publicized deer uh, and it reached more people. Um, but I feel like that was 2003 
I feel like the glory days, the greatest field deer hunting I've ever seen was probably 2007 to, well, I, I guess to now it, 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 it catwalked into something. I remember days when I was young, when if someone found a set of antlers off of a non-typical 200 inch mule deer buck, it was a huge deal, like crazy huge. And I've seen years in March when shed hunters are going out, I've seen guys find three sets of antlers in one day off of bucks that were over 200 inches, fresh antlers in one day. Like, I don't know what it is. I, I just think the right genetics, the right winters, the right climate, all of the stars have aligned at certain times in Saskatchewan to create just a dreamland for mule deer and whitetails. We have great whitetail hunting as well. It's a, it's a great province for a sportsman. We have, you can shoot 400 inch elk in Saskatchewan. You can shoot 230 inch moose. You can shoot over 200 inch mule deer and you can shoot over 200 inch whitetails antelope black bears it it's a great province it, it's probably one of the biggest reasons that i have a tv show and that i've made the living that i have in the outdoor space because we have animals that people dream about and they're if if i didn't have a voice and i couldn't even speak or voice over my show they would watch it just to see the animals that we get to hunt we're so lucky i agree i I watch records constantly coming in. I'm managing them and I look at, I love looking at old records. I almost enjoy that as much as I do looking at old maps and, and being a map geek. It's um, fascinating where you find historical veins or strains of, of a genetic um, right here in Deschutes County in Oregon. There's somehow it survived. There's a, a big non-typical genetic. Um, and you don't find it in many of the other counties in Oregon. There's a, there's a couple counties that in Colorado, there's a couple counties in Montana. It's kind of funny that that is so strong. And, and then there are, there are probably genetics out there that have died off, whether it's winter kill, winter <laughs> range, migrations, whatever it is. Um, it really does seem like the last 10 or 20 years, more and larger bucks with the, with the non-typical genetic out of Saskatchewan are, are showing up. I kind of wondered if, is that the, is that the internet doing that? You know, have are other ones out there that we never heard of, or is it really? Um, it's a special place. Yeah, it, it, It's a really special place. There's a, the one year that the year that we shot the, that I got the, like the world record buck. Um, so it was 2011. There was three different deer that we filmed and captured the hunts for that year that I knew. I, I knew those bucks years previous. They were all seven years old and they all completely exploded that year. And I talked to an agronomist about it and I showed him some of my footage. And there was a, a certain clover plant that each one of these bucks lived on alkali flats. And there was a clover that he said can only actually grow about every four years. The moisture has to be right for it to explode and, and, you know, have a, have a lifespan that year. It can only grow every four years if the moisture is right. And then it's gone again. And he thinks a duck came along and 
shit out a seed or something that started this certain clover in this area. But that 294 inch buck, he was 202 inches the year before as a six-year-old. As a seven-year-old, the next year, he lived in that clover all summer. I have pictures of him standing in that clover, just with his eyes sticking out like an alligator with these giant antlers. And he went from 202 to 294 as a seven-year-old buck. Another deer scored 207 as a six-year-old the year before. I, I saw his sheds. I didn't find them, but I know a gentleman that found his sheds. And he scored 242 as a seven-year-old. He grew, you know, 30, 30 some inches. And another lady shot with us, shot a, a deer that was 180 inches the year before. I saw him the year before, didn't find his antlers. I would have guessed him at 180 and he scored 227 or 221 or 227, but he, he jumped 30 inches and all of these deer lived on the same alkali flat where this clover was growing. And it, I wish That's I could create that clover. That's not a I, I, clover. So I showed the, uh, it had white flowers on it and I showed, um, I showed an agronomist friend of mine, the video footage. And he goes, oh, that's such and such. And he said, there's certain levels in those plants that can change, especially in alkali with the right moisture. So that's an alkali flat that's normally just white dust in the summer and fall. And that year, it wasn't white dust. Like it's a, it's a dried up bed that's, you know, used to be covered in water. And it's just white. It's just salty. And that particular year, it was just like an ocean of beautiful lush green plants. And he said, everything was just perfect. All of the levels of whatever was in those plants was perfect that year. And it, I wish I could duplicate it, but it was, it was crazy for the muley site year. Wow. That's well, my cool. last and probably one of the most obvious questions or <laughs> sort of obvious questions that you probably get a lot. How many renditions how many different hats that you have hanging in the back has it taken throughout your career that can't be the same hat you haven't washed it a hundred thousand times and it's still alive the red one yeah so so i've gone through it, it, i started wearing a hat like that one 10 or 15 years ago by accident because i have a big fat head and stocking caps don't fit my head. So if I try and pull them down, it doesn't cover my ears. So I got one of those hats that has the flaps that comes down and I got attacked. It was right when social media was coming out. I got attacked with how stupid my hat was. And it, I got to the point where I was like, I'm not taking this hat off. I'm going to wear it in the summer. People are going to bitch about it. I'm going to just keep wearing it. And that hat got so disgusting. It, it smelled like a, so in Canada, our football is hockey but it started smelling like a hockey bag. Like it, it was yes. disgusting. And I finally decided I was going to retire it. And that's, that's the original one that I retired. And one of the braids on the side came undone and it got chewed up by a dog. And it, it's got oil stains on it from trying to fix a truck in the middle of the night coming home from hunting, but we washed it and I hung it up. And then I found I was in a, was in a Western store, I think, or a Christmas store or something. I was Christmas shopping and I saw that exact same hat. And they had like a, a row of like 12 of them. And I thought, you know what? It's kind of become a thing. I bought the whole stack and I've been going through them. I probably have, I maybe have two or three left, yeah. but it's, yeah, it's kind of become a little bit of a trademark for me. Yeah. It's Zumbo and Shockey and, and Chuck Adams. A lot of people have a, a hat that is 
synonymous with a, a look or a, a memory. And I was just always curious. I, I go, that hat's way too red. I've got a little <laughs> red crusher that hangs with my antlers. I retire all my hats or whatever like that. And it's almost white now. It's just worn out. Yeah. There's a, I feel like as hunters, there's so many of us that have a, a lucky hat, you know, something that's, you know, we're superstitious about something. I have an undershirt. <clears throat> so I was guiding. I was 18 years old. It was my very first guiding job. And I remember how excited a guy would get talking about what you thought you might get tipped. Like when you're a teenager, you have no money and you'd be guiding, you know, um, successful, wealthy hunters. And the one day, one time I was guiding, he might listen to this. I don't know, but he was a, a retired major league pitcher. And I remember guiding him and he shot a beautiful bear. And I remember thinking this guy's tip is going to be massive. Like I'm, I'm going to be so rich. I, I'm going to be able to buy a truck when this guy tips me. And he, at the end of the week, I was the last day I was about to say goodbye to him. And I remember walking around camp thinking just like all the anticipation, thinking, I wonder how much cash he's going to give me. I'm so excited. And uh, are you a curveball? Oh, this is a curveball. This is a big one. He, uh, he finally says, he comes over to me. He's like, Cody, I had the greatest time with you. It like, I just can't even explain to you all of the effort that you put into it. You made this trip the best it could possibly be. I'm like, Oh yeah, here comes the cash. Here it comes. I'm going to get this great big tip. And he pumps me up. And he goes, there's something I want to give you. It means a lot to me. And I, I want you to have it. I got to run and get it. I'll be right back. He runs to his cabin. He comes back and it's an undershirt and he's worn it all week. And he hadn't washed it. We're up in a camp with like no running water. We got nothing. He hands me this undershirt that he wore for five days straight under his hunting gear. And it like it, it reeked. <laughs> and it was like a Colorado bow hunters club and it had an antelope on it. And he handed it to me and he said, this has been my lucky undershirt for seven or eight years. And it comes from my hunting club at home in Colorado. I want you to have it. And I remember at first looking at this shirt thinking, where the hell is my cash? How, how did I get this guy's dirty laundry? And then it's funny because that undershirt, that was, I was 18 years old and I'm 43 now. And that shirt is still hanging in my closet upstairs. So it's, I've had it for, I can't even do math. Twenty. 25 years, 26 years. And if times are tough and things aren't going well, it doesn't even have the right camo. I'm sponsored by Mossy Oak. I wouldn't even wear it as my outer layer, but if times are tough, I go get that undershirt and I put it on and I'm superstitious. I believe that that's something that I can pull out a card that I can play when I really need things to turn around. And I, I like that about hunters. I love lucky hats, lucky shirts, anything lucky or anything that we find superstitious. I think that's pretty cool stuff. You're on mute, Dylan. I said, will you send me that shirt? Cause I need some luck on my side. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty tight. It's uh, a medium and it's been shrunk. My wife has shrunk it about four times. So <laughs> no, uh, we ask one question and we ask this question of everybody. What's one thing, no matter where you're hunting, no matter what kind of adventure you're on, no matter who you're with, what's one non-traditional hunting item that you always have with you? Not your bow or a knife or binoculars, but what's one non-traditional hunting item that you always have with you in the woods, on the mountain, in the back country, wherever you're at, one item you've always got. 
Hmm. I'm a cowboy. I always have, I always have a knife on my jeans. I that, see, but that's traditional. Everybody carries a knife in their hand. Hmm. I thought the obvious answer was the red hat, but I, yeah, I, I do. I, other things. I, I always have my red hat with me, even in the summertime. If I go on a, a backpack hunt in August in the mountains, but I, it can snow, but I always have that red hat. I have it no matter what. Um, I might have to go with that. One, one tradition I do, I, uh, when I'm on trips, I'm always looking for little rocks, little heart-shaped rocks to bring home to my girls. Um, I when I get home from a, a hunting trip, there, did you find me a rock? And I dig through my pack and I always have two or three little heart-shaped rocks and they have like a little collection of heart-shaped rocks from their dad. So that's, that's one that's thing that cool. I do. That's, and really I, that's cool. I've always picked yeah. up rocks for my daughter. She's 24 now. I've got jars of them. I don't even know where some of them have came from or which ones came from where. Not all of them, if any of them, maybe are heart-shaped, but that's really cool. I'm not the only weirdo, Dylan. Rocks. <laughs> if if Shocky if Shocky watches this, he's gonna think I'm a I'm a big ripoff artist because I learned that from him. He used to do that with Louise, actually. He uh, oh. we'd go on trips and he'd he'd be out digging around for rocks. He'd be up early in the morning if if we had anywhere near a beach or a shale ridge or something. He'd always be looking for heart shaped rocks to take home to Louise, and I I witnessed that and their love. And I, I kind of held on to that and I started doing it with, with my girls at home. So it's cool stuff. That is cool. If you only had one more hunt left in you, if you only had one more opportunity to go hunting, what would it be and where? Oh, I, you know what? I, if, if I had only one more hunt, it, it should probably be a big old muley buck in velvet close to home. Just it. If it wasn't my last hunt, I could care less if I hunted another mule deer because I've, I've just been so lucky. I've lived so many wicked experiences with big muley bucks. I've crawled so many thousands of miles doing like the commando army crawl, like the, the elbows and toes kind of a crawl that I could care less if I ever snuck up on another big muley buck in my life. But if, if there was only one more chance to go hunting, it probably should be a big mealy buck. That's cool. Well, I, man, I don't want to get off. It's been a great conversation. Cody, we appreciate it greatly, man. As Tim mentioned, uh, we're going to have to have you back on because there's, there were so many good conversations that, that spurred so many more ideas. Uh, for conversation. So I really appreciate you coming on, man. I really appreciate what you do for the industry. I really appreciate your standpoint and uh, I look forward to the next time we get to have you on, man. But guys, thank you so much for listening. Y'all have a fantastic week. Dylan, thank you so much for having me. And Tim, same. I, I look forward to being back on your show. There's so many more things I would love to talk to you guys about, you know, with uh, archery goals of mine and whitetail hunting and so many things would even come close to touching on and also really excited to get my bucks entered in Pope and young you saying that um my 259 inch buck that i call sleepy my actually my favorite hunt i've ever done in my life um he would be number nine all time it's pretty cool to think that i would have a number two all time and a number nine all time of the same species like 
when you said he would have been number nine all time, I don't even know where, how you knew what he scored, but to know that I'd have two in the top 10, it gave me butterflies. I think that's pretty cool stuff. My job I'm I'm supposed to know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm excited to, uh, to go deeper on that with you and get them entered so that people can see them. 